following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, August 27th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. and You know, it's important, I guess, for me to be honest that it's with a clean conscience this morning that I can actually say that it's good to be back with you this morning because if I had been asked to say that last week, I probably wouldn't have been able to say it. I, I still miss my vacation. Um, and last week, I think I was still too close to it to be able to say it's good to be back. And for those of you with kids, you know that sometimes when you take a vacation, you come home and you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation because of all the work it took to actually go on vacation. Well, that wasn't the case for me this year. That's why I miss my vacation. Uh, vacation this year for me was, was transformational. Um, and no other vacation has ever been that way. And here's what, what happened. For the first time in my adult life, I went away on vacation and I put an autoresponder in my email telling people that I was actually on vacation. Now, some of you do that all the time, but I had never done that before, which means that when I'm away in my mind, I know that if I get an email from someone that needs something, they don't know I'm actually on vacation. So me not responding to them means they think I'm ignoring them and a whole cycle gets going in my head. But I did an autoresponder this year and didn't worry about it. But then something else happened, and this is what really made it transformational. That's minor for many of you. This is what made it transformational for me. I got in the car and I took out my phone and I put my phone on airplane mode and it stayed on airplane mode for the entire vacation. I never took it off airplane mode, which means no phone calls, no texts, no notifications, no emails. My phone became nothing but a camera and it was glorious. Um, you asked my wife, it was amazing for me to have that thing untethered from my mind, from my heart, from feeling. If only text would let you do an auto response. Somebody, all of you wizards with the computer, figure out how to do an auto response from messages on the iPhone. That would have made it even better if I could have just set that up. But it was shut off and it was amazing. And coming home, we realized that I will never do vacation again the way I used to. Like I had experienced the freedom of mind, the freedom of heart from all the things that used to catch me when I was gone, all the things that used to rob me from what was going on around me, all the things that used to, that used to keep me a bit set apart from my family and from what was happening on vacation because I was always consumed with maybe I didn't finish something, maybe I missed something, somebody trying to get me, it was done. And it was free. And it was glorious. And it was amazing. And I'm not going back at all to the way it used to be. Now, I realize this is the third service I've told that story. And every single service, there's a handful of faces that literally glaze over. Like the thought of turning your phone off for an entire vacation, Facebook might die if they don't see your picture. Like there's no way. Your face, whoosh. So I'm trying to take you somewhere to get where we're going in the text this morning. So let me give you another illustration, another story, and see if I don't bring the rest of you back around who shut off when I talked about turning the phone off. Imagine that you had a friend, a close friend, someone you loved, and they had a whole host of various physical pains and aches and didn't really have a lot of energy. There wasn't much vitality to the way they lived their life. They couldn't figure out what it was, but it seemed like they were being robbed because of the way they felt. 
Imagine that that friend found out the thing that was causing all of that in their body and in their life was something that they ate every single day. And all they had to do was stop eating it. And so they did. They stopped eating it. And it was like your friend that you loved got an entirely new lease on life and you got a new friend. Doing things together and experiencing things together you couldn't have done before because they just didn't have the energy or just didn't have the ability. Their body just wouldn't let them do it. But now you can. It's like a whole new thing. But in a manner of time, you begin to watch little bit by little bit, your friend go back and begin to eat again that thing they knew would cause the pain that they had experienced before. Let me ask you this. Would you simply just sit there silently and watch them do it? Knowing the pain, knowing the discomfort, knowing what it robbed of them, would you just watch silently as they go back to that? Or would your love for them lead you to plead with them not to go back to what they had been set free from? All you've got to do is not eat it. Don't don't go back. Would you sit silently and watch them return to the pain or, or would you plead with them? Would your love lead you to plead with them? If you can begin to imagine that kind of feeling, that kind of situation, that kind of love, that kind of experience of something like I had on vacation or or like this friend has when they stopped eating what was causing so much pain. If you can imagine having that kind of experience and so changes the way that you see life, the way that you live, you're only beginning to scratch the surface of the emotion that's welling up into the heart of the Apostle Paul while he sits down to write this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. In fact, as we continue our series this morning in Galatians, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, in particular verses 8 through 20, we're going to get a different view of the Apostle Paul. We've been familiar, we've been acquainted with the Paul that a lot of us are accustomed to thinking about. Paul the theologian as he's been arguing different biblical and doctrinal truths in the first part of the letter, but now we take a turn and we get a glimpse into the heart of Paul the pastor. Paul the shepherd. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, said that these verses in particular, verses 8 through 20 of chapter 4, these words breathe Paul's own tears. These words breathe Paul's own tears. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, in thinking about these verses and in writing about these verses, Chrysostom said that in the preceding verses of the letter, the Apostle Paul had stretched out his hand to a tempest-tossed disciples. But now he brings himself right into the midst of their very storm. I I loved that particular analysis of the verses because it reminds me of why we actually chose to title this series on the book of Galatians, Anchored. Chrysostom used the illustration of Paul in the early part of the letter, reaching out his hand to steady, so to speak, the church, the disciples, like a ship being tossed to and fro in a stormy sea. Paul has been dropping gospel anchors throughout the beginning of this letter, trying to steady the hearts of the church. And as I was preparing for this series and just studying the book and reading different articles and different scholars talk about the letter itself, 
I came across something I had never known before that some church historians had been writing about. And one historian said, and this is partly why we titled it the way we did, that in the early church, the universal symbol for God's people wasn't the cross. It was actually the anchor. It's a long article about the anchor and the history of the early church, but he says this, if I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned to the stake or crucified and set ablaze as human torches at one of Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is indeed my one true anchor. Just as the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, reminding us as God's people of the certainty of God's promise and the certainty of God's faithfulness, the blessings, the inheritance that he promised through Abraham, that he fulfilled for us in Christ, who can go where we could not go, behind the veil, in the temple, into the holy of holies. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 says in verse 19, you and I now have this hope in Christ as an anchor for our soul. It's firm. It's secure. That's why I loved Chrysostom's analysis of these verses. Because Paul has already told us, if you've been with us, that these churches are being tossed to and fro like a ship in a stormy sea, and they're on the edge of destruction. Teachers have come in and disturbed the joy and the freedom that God's people were experiencing in the gospel. They were seeking to lead them back into bondage, back into slavery. They were on the edge of being tossed into destruction. And Paul, in this letter, has been dropping anchors to steady, to strengthen, to remind the church of the firmness and security of God's promises. The massive anchor that Paul has dropped, that we've seen over and over and over again from every conceivable angle so far, is the anchor of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That our standing with God, our standing before God, the confidence that we can have in God's affection towards us, our salvation, our redemption, our adoption into God's family, our new identity as a co-heir with Christ, the promise of God's spirit alive and at work in us, securing us and transforming us into the image of Christ, all of that is not in any way, shape, form, or passion, fashion, Paul has argued, based on our performance for God. Our justification, our right standing before God, the security we have with the forgiveness of our sins by God himself is not based in any way, shape, form, or fashion on our performance for God. Our justification has been won and is secured in what God has done for us through his son in our place. Paul has dropped that massive anchor down and it's caught the bottom of the heart. And Paul has been arguing for this reality in the lives of God's people and has been providing stability and security. He's argued and helped us see the reality of this from his conversion. He's reminded the church of their experience of the gospel and their experience of God's spirit. He's taken different illustrations from the life that they would have been familiar with and applied this reality to their life, helped them see it working out in them. He's argued from the Old Testament scriptures a rich and true reality of God's grace for his people through his son. He's seen, he's shown us, he's helped us to see and come back to terms with the expansiveness of his grace. That through faith alone, in Christ alone, Jew and Gentile, both become heirs of all that God has promised through Abraham and in his son. 
The expansiveness of God's grace to all people has been made known again. Through faith in Christ, Paul's reminded us of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's reminded us that all of this is owing in no part to any of our good works. Now, now Paul the theologian gives way to Paul the pastor. Now we hear the heart of the shepherd. If you've got your Bibles, chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. I'm going to read through verse 20. We will only go through verse 11, though, together this morning. But I want you to hear the whole argument, the whole plea, the whole heart of Paul here. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. What's stirring this in the heart of the pastor? What's stirring this in the heart of Paul, the shepherd? There's two big things I want us to hear this morning. One is a very sobering reality. These verses comprise, for me, one of the most sobering sections in the entire New Testament. The other most sobering part of the entire New Testament for me that this one stands shoulder to shoulder with is in Matthew chapter 7. When a number of men and women come up to Jesus, you might be familiar with this part of the story. They come up to Jesus and they say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? We were out on trips doing things for you. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I was doing everything everybody else was doing. I don't know you. It's one of the most sobering texts in the entire New Testament. I want you to know, because it's good for us, these verses stand right next to it. These verses contain one of the most sobering warnings that God gives his people in the New Testament, but they also contain one of the most sensational truths about the God who loves us that we'll ever read. It's sobering, but we've got to get through the sobering to really appreciate the sensational. So let's start with what's so sobering 
about these verses. Listen again to how Paul starts. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, Paul starts verse 8 cluing us into a time in which he's speaking about. When Paul says formerly, he's referring to the reality of the lives of the Galatian church prior to them hearing and receiving the gospel. He's talking about their lives before Jesus. And so there's something about their lives before Jesus that we need to understand if we're going to catch the sobering message that Paul is giving us here and now. The Galatian church that Paul is writing to, the different churches that make up this region, they were composed primarily of Gentile believers, not Jewish believers, which means the majority of the church that Paul was writing to grew up steeped in a religion of idolatry. They believed, depending on which region that they were from and what part of the Roman Empire they had grown up in, they believed that basically behind every single elementary reality in the world, behind the earth, the fire, the water, the sun, the moon, the stars, behind the land, behind the seas, behind agriculture, behind wine, behind business, behind everything, was a different deity, was a different God, was a different spirit. And so you don't really need to know the details of the various gods that they worshipped. What you really need to understand to capture what Paul is actually trying to communicate is how that idolatry worked. If you were a farmer, you performed certain sacrifices and kept certain rituals and followed a certain calendar that the god of agriculture, that that religion, that belief had set in place so that by your performance for that god, you sought to ensure that god's performance for you when harvest came. If you did everything you were supposed to do, you believed you were trying to curry the favor of that God so that when harvest came, you'd have a plentiful harvest. If you were a sailor before you went out on a big voyage into the chaotic seas like Pastor Chris talked about last week, you would follow a certain set of rituals, a certain set of practices, a certain set of sacrifices that you would do in order to gain or curry the favor of the God of the sea that you might have safe passage on your trip. If you were a businessman, it was the same thing. You performed in a certain way, believing that your performance for these gods would ensure or curry their favor towards you. That's the essence of how this idolatry worked. And Paul said, prior to hearing the gospel proclaimed, prior to the Spirit of God opening up the eyes of your heart that you might see His glory in the face of His Son and receive that good news, you were ignorant. You didn't know God. You were enslaved to things that aren't God. You were most to be pitied, enslaved to weak and worthless things. Why in the world would you want to go back? Your sin had been diagnosed your cure had been proclaimed to you in Christ crucified and raised. You had received it. You had experienced the freedom from it. Why would you go back to those chains again? Why? Here's the sobering part. If you read these verses too quickly, you will begin to think that the believers in the church that Paul is talking to are on the edge of going back 
to the pagan worship that they had been rescued from. They were going back to the temple of, of Aphrodite. They were going back to the sacrifices and the worship of the gods of the sea. They were going back to the end worship of the gods of finance and, and, and the merchant trades. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not the warning. What has Paul been arguing against this entire letter? I've already said it probably a dozen times so far this morning. Teachers had come into the church and begun to deceive the church into believing that somehow the full assurance of their righteousness before God, the full assurance of God's affection towards them was built partially on their performance for God. Yes and amen, these teachers would say, to your faith in Christ as your Savior, but now to fully know you're right before God, to fully know that God really does love you, you are going to have to perform well for him. And so Paul has been arguing the truth that they had once believed of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now Paul says, why are you going back? What Paul is saying is that at one point in your life, you were enslaved to things that weren't really gods through pagan idolatry. You believed that you had to do this and that and perform in a particular way for that God to be pleased by you. Now you're in danger of being enslaved all over again, believing that for the one true God, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. You've got to perform this way in order for him to love you, for him to accept you, for you to be right with him. The sobering truth of what Paul is trying to communicate to the church is that you can be just as enslaved to idols in the church as you can outside the church. You can be just as enslaved sitting here believing that it's your performance for God that guarantees your standing before him and his affection towards you as you are outside the church believing that it's your performance, it's your work, it's your sacrifice to your job, to your family, to any number of things that bring you what you think you need. Idolatry is a multifaceted beast. Paul's saying you could sacrifice at the altar of your career. You could sacrifice at the altar of a family. You can sacrifice at the altar of your own beauty. Any of those things can become idols for you. Any of those things can become controlling passions for you. Any of those things can become things you think you have to have in order to be fulfilled. And you can order your life around any number of those things and not say it this way, but they become an act of worship for you to something that is not God. Just as before they had heard the gospel, they were behaving in a certain way to please a God they thought was behind what they were trying to achieve. You can do that. And we talk about that here all the time. But the warning that Paul is making is more severe. You can also sit in here and become enslaved to a pattern and form of behavior, a pattern and form of religion, believing that it's what you do and what you don't do that somehow earns God's affection towards you that somehow solidifies your standing before God. Instead of being converted to Christ, this is how I came to realize it in my own life, instead of being converted to Christ, you can become converted to Christianity. You can become converted to the church. 
you can become converted to a pattern and form of religion that looks right, that everyone would agree with, that everyone would applaud, but just like giving your life over to the gods of your career or the gods of your own beauty, both keep you from actually following Jesus. That's the real danger. And this religious enslavement, this thing that we so easily want to return to and bind ourselves in, is more dangerous than we ever care to realize because it's so hard for us to see. John Stott, great British pastor, some of you are familiar with him, he's trying to figure out how to communicate this to his congregation when he's preaching, and he's trying to describe what this kind of enslavement looks like in the lives of God's people. And he says that our relationship with God is no, becomes no longer the free and joyful communion of a child with their father. Instead, it becomes a dreary routine of rules and regulations. Stock goes on to say that any good thing raised to become your ultimate thing enslaves you. And it can enslave you just as much by being good as by being bad. So we talk about idolatry in here all the time. We talk about our jobs and these pictures of an ideal family and these pictures of a perfect future we think we have to have, all these different things we give ourselves over to, never talking about the fact that we can do the same thing in here. It can look good. It can be a pattern of behavior that looks right. But yet it be binding us again in chains. The sobering reality, the, the cold water to the face, so to speak, is that you can be here this morning gathering with God's people. You can spend time during the week in different homes around the city gathering with God's people. You can spend time reading God's word. You can spend time in prayer. You can go to different parts of the world proclaiming the name of Jesus to people that you know have never heard it. And if you do any of those things, believing that in them somehow you are meriting your standing before God through them, Paul says right here, you find yourself in chains again. And it looks good. But you're enslaved. When you begin to believe that it's anything that you do that somehow merits God's affection towards you and the security of your standing with him, you are putting yourself in chains again. All of those things are crucial. Gathering with God's people here, gathering with God's people out there, going places to preach the name of Jesus, communing with God in prayer, knowing him through his word, yes and amen to all of them. But when they become the means by which we believe we're securing our relationship with God, they're chains. It's enslavement. No one's helped me understand this better than John Piper. I could probably say that about any topic. He's trying to figure out how to communicate this to his congregation too, knowing the temptation that exists in his, the hearts of his people. And Piper says that Satan is relentless in his efforts to destroy your wholehearted dependence on God's sovereign grace. And I want you to hear what he's about to say, because this is a contemporary way of saying what Paul was saying back then. If Satan cannot make you disobey the commandments of God... He will bend every effort to make you obey them in the wrong spirit. Are you still obeying them? Yes. 
but he's getting you to obey them in the wrong spirit. Listen to what he says. Satan does not care if you try to keep the Ten Commandments provided that you take the credit for keeping them. In fact, he will assist your moral resolve if you'll do it that way. Satan does not mind if you come to church. He doesn't mind if you stand up and preach. He doesn't mind if you lobby for a human life bill. He is all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided that you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ and take credit for it yourself instead of humbly giving all glory to God. That is religious enslavement. Paul is in pain for God's people because these chains are leading them to miss Jesus. Friends, I said it earlier, that was my story. It wasn't long at all after hearing the gospel proclaimed and God opening up the eyes of my heart to, to see his grace to me through his son that I quickly became converted not so much to Christ but more to the church and a pattern of Christianity that was common where I was. So for years, my relationship with God in my heart was grounded upon how well I was doing whatever it was I thought I was supposed to be doing for him. Whatever things I wasn't doing and whatever things I was doing, whatever places I was going and whatever places I was not going, whatever movies I was watching, whatever movies I wasn't watching, whatever music I did get rid of, whatever music I didn't get rid of, my standing before God was intimately connected in my heart and his affection towards me intimately connected to what I was doing for him. And it wasn't until he opened my eyes up to that reality that I realized that I found myself enslaved I had wrapped myself up in those chains. Here's what I know about that enslavement. Here's what I know about those chains. In that slavery, there is no peace in the heart. There is no real abiding joy in the heart. You see, when you come to believe that God's view of you, his heart towards you, is tied up in your obedience. It's tied up in your performance. It's tied up in your activity. It's tied up in what you do. It's tied up in what you don't do. Here's the thing. You will never, ever, ever be able to do enough or not do enough to be fully secure in knowing that you and God are okay. You'll never be able to do enough or not do enough to ever be truly assured that you and God are okay. And you can live your life under the crushing weight of that kind of anxiety. Unless the grace and the mercy of God breaks in, and here's what he did for me. I began to see, as God began to show me, that even in all of my best efforts, and all the things I was doing and all the ways that I had changed and all the stuff I was trying to do, believing that I was somehow securing God's love for me in them and that God was happy with me through all this and if I didn't do all those things, then God wouldn't be happy. Through all those best efforts, I began to see that even in the best of them, there was still sin. But even in the best of my efforts to obey, to obey and to perform, there was still sin. 
So all of a sudden, not only did I not know if I could do enough to make sure that we were okay, now everything I thought I did well was tainted. What a wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? When you choose to bind yourself to the enslavement of believing that God's love for you and your standing before him is based and built upon your performance for him, there can be no peace in your conscience. There will be no joy in your heart. That's why in verse 15, some of your translations do a really good job of this. Paul looks at the church. He's writing to the church about all this. He says, where's your joy? Where's your joy? I had known you in the gospel. There was such joy. Now, where is it? In these chains, there can be no peace. And there can be no joy. Friends, this performance, this churchy religious idolatry, it is the enemy of the gospel. You and I choose to exchange the inheritance of the gospel for chains. so easy to find ourselves there, isn't it? I mean, we've said it over and over in the series. I mean, the air we breathe and the world that we live in is the air of performance. There is no part of our world where the grace that God shows us, the kind of love and grace that God shows us through his son is present in any way. There is no other place in our world like that. Everything in our life to some way, shape, form, or fashion apart from God's love towards us is based upon our performance. So when you and I hear the gospel and God opens up our hearts, we receive the gospel, we begin to live in the joy of the gospel, it is easy for us to begin to doubt that what God really said is true. To really take him at his word because nothing else in our world is like that. But listen, we're not a victim in it. Paul's very clear in the way he speaks. You and I choose to bind ourselves up in those chains again. You and I choose to believe again that God's love for us and our standing with him is somehow intricately based upon our performance. I encourage you, if you enjoy the book of Galatians, go get Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians. It's eminently readable, okay? Don't be scared of it. It's very readable. Luther, trying to figure this out for, for his church, Luther said it's very easy for you and I to fall away from the truth of the gospel because... Even the faithful don't grasp what an excellent and precious treasure the true knowledge of God is. Did you catch what he said? It's so easy for you and I to go back to binding ourselves back up again with those chains because we fail to grasp the beauty and the glory and the precious nature of the treasure of what the true knowledge of God in Christ is for us. Luther says when that happens, we don't exert as much effort trying to experience it and hold on to it. He said most of us who hear God's word, we're living complacently and therefore we're not armed with the word of God against the devil's tricks. Remember what Piper was saying? 
He doesn't care what you do as long as you do it in the wrong spirit. As long as you take credit for it. You can do everything you think you're supposed to do. Luther's saying when, when we're not warmed by the fire of the precious reality of God's love for us in Christ, we can't stand against his tricks. We don't feel the power of his word. And so what happened to the Galatians happens to us. We find ourselves seduced and choosing to turn back to weak and miserable principles, imaginations of our own heart. We choose to go back and enslave ourselves, to bind ourselves up again in those chains. And when that happens, the form of religion that we build around the gospel becomes the very thing that keeps us from actually experiencing the grace and the freedom of the gospel. See, Paul says you can be just as enslaved inside the church as you can outside the church. And so he makes his appeal. If God has set you free by grace through faith in his son, don't go back. If he has set you free Don't go back. Do not go back to living as though you're standing before him and his affection for you is dependent upon your performance for him. Don't go back. It's slavery. It's a sobering word to the church because the reality is just as present in our hearts as it was in theirs. But Paul says something else in these verses too that I don't want us to miss. There's something truly sensational in here. It starts by understanding the sober though. It's sobering for me to think that in my heart resides the capacity to experience the love of God in Christ and the freedom of the gospel and yet choose to believe that God's love for me is contingent on my performance for him. It's sobering to think that in my heart is the capacity to believe that I need to build a pattern of obedience and a pattern of religion and a form of godliness that somehow merits God's love for me. And that I use the same form and the same pattern to gauge everyone else's standing before God. It's sobering to believe in my heart this capacity resides that I can put myself back into that kind of bondage and seek to bind others up in those same chains. The warmth of my heart towards God, my affections towards God, the joy of my heart in obedience to God's word, my knowledge of him, all of those things, let's be honest, All of those things fluctuate up and down on a daily basis, don't they? Your affection towards God and the warmth of your heart towards him, it's up and down, isn't it? It's not the exact same every day. Your joy and delight and obedience to God, it's not the same today as it was yesterday. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. And the sobering reality is when you and I try to establish our relationship with God upon the grounds of these things, we find ourselves in grave danger. Which is why what Paul said in verse 9 becomes so sensational to me. The more I think about it and the more I realize just how like the church in Galatia I am, that I've experienced the grace of God just as many of you have and 
I've tasted of his mercy and I've witnessed the work of his spirit in me and through me. All of those things are owing not to anything that I have done, but because God chose to know me. Verse 9, Paul said, now you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. You see, ultimately, what makes you a Christian is that God knows you. It's not what you do. It's not what you don't do. It's not what you read and what you don't read. It's not what you watch and what you don't watch. It's not what you wear and what you don't wear. It's not where you were born and where you weren't born. It's not how much money you have and how much money you don't have. It's not the house you live in or the house you don't live in. What makes you a Christian is that God knows you, that he loves you, that he chose you, that he put his grace and his mercy on you. What matters most underneath it all, the ground and foundation of it for you is that God knows you. It's what he thinks of you when he thinks of you in his son. Friends, no one said it better than J.I. Packer. Packer says, I know God because God first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, as one who loves me, and there's no moment when his eye is ever off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, where his care for me ever falters. And here's where Packer's going to say something in a moment. And for those of you that find yourselves continually going back to binding yourself up in this belief that it's what you do for God that secures his love for you, you need to hear what Packer's about to say. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion God about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. And no knowledge of me could ever quench his determination to bless me. Friends, slavery wants you and I to build our relationship upon, with God upon the warmth and the chill of our affection for him and our obedience to him. The gospel frees us in the sensational joy that what matters most and what secures it most is not how up and down we are, but how consistently faithful to us God is. The almighty God of Psalm 33 that Chris led us through last week, the one who spoke creation into existence, who gathered the chaos of the seas, he loves you in his son and that never changes. He formed you, he made you, he created you. It's his thought right now about you that is sustaining the reality of your life right now. And if you've tasted of his grace in his son, it's your name that's engraven upon the palms of his hands. That God so you and I in this slavery, we, we tend to think the things we do are the core of who we are. But the truth of the gospel is this. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by the fact that God knows you. So listen to Paul. Why go back? Why go back? 
you don't have to perform. He sent his son to die in your place for your sins that you might know him and experience the grace of him knowing you. Why go back? In fact, if you have been reading CBR, you know that we were in Psalm 34 yesterday. Listen to the word of the psalmist. Taste and see that the Lord really is good. No one, no one who takes refuge in Him will ever be condemned. Friends, that's the freedom and the joy of the gospel. Don't go back. Don't go back. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have a chance to respond to God and we're going to do it a few ways. We're going to respond first by having some time for you to reflect on God's word and to, and to allow your heart to cry out to God and however you need to. Some of you might need to repent. Some of you may need to, to cry out to him and thanks. We're going to give you a couple minutes to deal with God and let him deal with you and then together as his people, for those who have tasted of his grace and mercy and his son, we're going to respond to that by receiving communion, proclaiming to one another our confidence in his love for us through his son. And then we're going to sing, use the voices that he's given us to make much of him, and then be sent out as a family to this place. So before we do that, let me pray for us, and, and then we'll have a chance to respond together. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word to us through Paul. But we need to hear the sobering reality that our hearts are prone. They're prone to enslavement. We're the ones that want to go back. God, we ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the miracle that only you can do. And you would give us a renewed sense and taste of the joy of the freedom that's ours through your Son. Lord, Lord, stir in us a, a sensitivity to this desire to go back. Lord, help us to see when our heart is wanting to go back and choosing to go back and, and thinking in those ways again. Help us to see it quickly, that we might repent of it and turn from it and taste again your goodness to us, that we might taste and see you really are good. We can take you at your word. We don't have to perform. Lord, set us free this morning. We ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.